0: Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. This is, by far, the strangest case I've covered on the podcast. There is cruelty, deceit, and obsession there is no shortage of foul language, and, as with each episode, there is love and loss. I originally heard about this case from my researcher, Haley. She sent over her work, and I read it three times wondering how I was going to translate this madness into an episode. So I watched a TV show about the case, which is something I don't usually do, but the show didn't help clarify how I was going to tell the story. So I went and got the book from the library, and I read the book while muttering, what the fuck, many, many times as I sifted through the chapters. This is a strange story, and it's a wild ride. For the sake of Carrie Farver, I hope I can do it justice. To understand how the madness began, we start with a man, a guy named Dave Krupa. He unwittingly became the focus of a stalker a woman so damaged that she lived to destroy, even taking down those closest to her. So come with me to the summer of 2012, when 34-year-old Dave Krupa, recently separated from his partner, decides to put himself out there and start dating again. Dave is a nice-looking guy, and he's got a good job. He'd spent the last 12 years with Amy Flora, and the couple had two children together, kids they loved very much. While the two adults couldn't make their relationship work, they maintained a cordial relationship and co-parented well. Dave worked as the manager of an automotive repair shop. He put in long hours, but he made a nice living, and he enjoyed the work and the team atmosphere at the shop. He always made time for his kids, and if Amy needed his help with them, or the co-parenting needed a schedule change, his kids came first. It was May or June when Dave decided he'd had enough alone time, so he downloaded a couple of dating apps, and he chose plenty of fish to put himself out there. On the app, he was clear that he was looking for something casual and fun. He wanted a companion, but not a partner. Dave was looking to connect, but not commit. This is something plenty of users are interested in. It was on Plenty of Fish that he met Liz, a dark-haired mother of two. They went out for coffee on their first date. There were a few more dates between them before the casual relationship became intimate. Soon they were seeing each other more frequently, but Dave was clear. The relationship between he and Liz was casual, not committed. Liz pouted. She wanted him for herself, but Dave was direct. She could do as she pleased, but he would be seeing other people. And as their relationship continued, Liz learned about Dave's ex, Amy, and Liz didn't like it. When Dave would make time to see his kids or have them for overnights, Liz would chide him for spending time with Amy. And he corrected her. He was spending time with the kids, Amy was not a factor. And this went on until the fall, when Dave met a new woman in an unexpected way. She walked into his workplace and handed him a set of keys. It was October of 2012 when 37-year-old Carrie Farver walked into Hyatt Tire looking to have work done on her car. She smiled at Dave, and he smiled right back. Carrie had light brown hair and hazel eyes. Dave was drawn to her. In fact, he wanted to ask her out right there, but he decided against it. He was at work. If he misread her signals, he could get in trouble, so he watched as she walked out of the shop, but he didn't forget about her. It was a week or so later when he spotted her again, this time on the Plenty of Fish dating app. There she was, the pretty lady from the tire shop. He sent her a note, saying something along the lines of, hey, I know you. Carrie was receptive, and the pair started chatting. Their first date was dinner at Applebee's on a Monday night. He learned that she was a computer programmer and the mother of a teenage boy. She told him she'd grown up in Macedonia, Iowa, about 30 miles outside of Omaha. The date was going well, but then Dave's phone pinged. Then it pinged again and again. Dave tried to ignore it because he didn't want to be rude to his date. But the pinging continued, so he stepped away from the table and returned a call to Liz. She was the one blowing up his phone. When she answered the phone, she said, I need my things. And Dave said, look, it's not a good time. Liz responded she needed her things right now. Now, over the last few months of dating, Liz had left some clothing and cookware at Dave's place, and apparently, if she didn't get it back right then, at 8 o'clock on Monday night, her life would spiral into crisis. Dave told her she had to wait until tomorrow and ended the call. He returned to the table and his date with Carrie. Things were going well. He invited her back to his place to hang out, and she agreed. But the moment they walked in the door, his phone pinged and pinged again. Then the security buzzer sounded, shrieking through the apartment. It was Liz. She was outside, demanding that she be allowed to collect her things. Exasperated, Dave turned to Carrie and apologized. He said, look, I've got to figure this out with Liz. Carrie seemed unfazed by the strange turn of events. She suggested that he call her when things calmed down. Dave walked Carrie to the door, and Liz watched as Carrie walked outside. Then Liz hurried into his apartment to collect her very important things. As quickly as Liz appeared, she got her stuff and stomped off. The exchange took mere moments. It was barely nine o'clock, and Dave was at his place alone. He picked up the phone and called Carrie. She was on her way back to Macedonia. The two laughed about the bizarre interaction with Liz, and Carrie suggested that he come visit— Dave didn't hesitate. He got in his car and made the drive to Macedonia and Carrie's house. Carrie's son was sleeping over at his grandparents' house that night, so they had the place to themselves. The two spent hours talking. She was direct. She said, look, I've had two failed marriages and I'm not looking for anything serious. Carrie told him she wanted someone to connect with, someone who would respect that she had her own life and her own schedule. Dave grinned. Not only was Carrie a very attractive woman, but she was also looking for the same things he wanted. Dave would later say that he felt like he hit the jackpot with Carrie Farver. When he returned home, he found a long rambling email from Liz. She wanted to know the status of their relationship. Dave was again clear with her. He liked her. He cared about her, but he was not looking for a serious relationship or a long-term commitment. Dave started hanging out with Carrie more often. She asked his advice about a car she'd purchased for her soon-to-be 16-year-old son, and he asked her for help decorating the bachelor pad he called home. At the end of their next date, Dave was just getting home when Liz called. She'd forgotten something else at his place, and he needed to bring it to her right away. Exasperated but hoping to keep her calm and out of his hair, he grabbed the item and drove to Liz's home. When she opened the door, it was clear she wanted Dave to give her more than her belongings. Dave and Liz hooked up, but it didn't change his mind about his relationship with Liz or his relationship with Carrie. He wasn't looking for a commitment. He didn't want anything serious. Liz and Carrie, they were very different people. Liz was a dark-haired mother of two whose given name was Shanna, and she owned a housekeeping business. Carrie, fair-haired and the mother of a teenage son, worked as a computer programmer. Dave learned that Carrie's office was close to his apartment and offered that she could stay at his place during the first week of November because she was working crazy long hours on a big project. Carrie's son, Max, would stay with her parents. The boy had a close relationship with Carrie's family. Carrie's dad was gravely ill, battling cancer. She had her hands full and the ability to stay with Dave, So close to her office meant that she didn't need to spend almost two hours a day in the car for her commute. On the morning of Tuesday, November thirteenth, two 2012, Carrie woke early. Dave had to be at work by 6.30, so she got up when he did. Dave bid Carrie farewell. She was sitting on the couch in her pajamas with her laptop and a cup of coffee. He would never see Carrie Farver again, but he would hear from her. Carrie did not make it into the office on November 13th. Her co-workers, who knew Carrie as dedicated, hardworking, and dependable, were surprised. They called her cell phone and left several messages that went unanswered. Carrie was online that morning, or at least her devices were. According to the book A Tangled Web by Leslie Rule, at 9.45 a.m., Carrie logged into Facebook and unfriended Dave Krupa. It was just after 10 a.m. that she texted Dave. Hey, should we move in together? Dave was surprised by the text. He thought they were both on the same page about a fun, casual relationship. He responded to her text with one word. No. Seconds later, Carrie responded, Fine, Fine, fuck fuck you. you. I'm I'm seeing seeing somebody somebody else. else. I hate you. Don't Don't contact contact me me again." again. Dave stared at his phone in shock. Where was this coming from? But his workplace was busy and his mind went to the task at hand. He tried not to think about Carrie or her bizarre change of heart until the end of the day. He dreaded going back to his apartment and facing her. He did not want a fight. When he arrived home, Carrie's car was gone and there was no sign of her in the apartment. It was like she'd never been there at all. He sank onto the sofa with a sigh. Dave Krupa decided that Carrie showing her true colors and leaving like she did was a favor to him. Dave was a lucky guy. But Dave Krupa wasn't the only one to receive a text from Carrie that day. Her mother, Nancy, also got a text which said that Carrie was taking a new job. Nancy was surprised by this. As far as she knew, Carrie liked her job and wasn't looking for a new one. Nancy tried to call Carrie several times, but her daughter never picked up. When Carrie missed a family wedding that weekend, her mother called the sheriff's department to file a missing persons report. And listeners, while Nancy hadn't heard from Carrie, Dave Krupa had. Carrie was texting him about Liz, calling her his whore. It didn't take long for Liz to call Dave complaining that she'd been receiving texts from his girlfriend. Ex-girlfriend, said Dave. Carrie Farver. Vulgar harassing texts. Carrie also texted her resignation into her workplace. By November 19th, both Carrie and her car, a Ford Explorer, were missing and being searched for by law enforcement. Eventually, police talked to Dave Krupa, and he told them about the harassing texts and the bizarre breakup. One of the deputies texted Carrie's phone, advising her that she was listed as a missing person and needed to check in with law enforcement. Carrie texted him back, saying she didn't care. She wasn't missing. She'd even gone to her house a few times to get her things. Carrie continued that she was leaving the state and the police should leave Dave Krupa out of it. The deputy responded that she would remain in the police database until they verified that she was safe and well. Meanwhile, police also talked to Liz Goliar. When they learned that Carrie and Liz were dating the same man, they wanted to check on her story. Liz was happy to talk to the police. She showed them the garage of her home, which had recently been vandalized. She said it was likely Carrie Farver who did this and that Carrie stole Liz's checkbook and wrote a check for $5,000. While police and Carrie's family are searching for her, Carrie was staking out Dave Krupa. He received more than 50 texts and emails a day, and not just random texts either. When he was kicked back on the couch watching TV, a text arrived. I see you with your feet propped up wearing a blue t-shirt. Another text said, you just got out of the shower. I see you. At work, he was plagued by hang-up calls on the business line. Not just Dave, though. Liz was on the receiving end of many nasty texts and emails. Then he had to worry about his ex and their children when Amy received a barrage of messages telling her, Leave Dave alone and calling her derogatory names. Dave continued to see Liz, the two taking refuge in the storm of texts and emails. One night, Liz and Dave were at his house watching a movie. Their phones pinged simultaneously, his in his pocket and hers in her purse on the table. It was Carrie with another unpleasant, threatening message. On November 21, 2012, Carrie updated her Facebook status to say that she was moving to Kansas for a job. There was no mention made of her son or her parents. In December of 2012, two notable things happened. Carrie emailed Dave to tell him that she was pregnant with his child. Listeners, this came as a surprise to Dave, who'd had a vasectomy years earlier. On December seventh, Carrie's father lost his battle with cancer. It wasn't long after he passed that Nancy's mother had a vivid dream. She saw Carrie's father, her former husband, and he was in good health. He said to her, Nancy, she's with me. The dream was so clear and strong that it woke Nancy up. Days later, Nancy received another text from Carrie. I'm sorry I missed the funeral. Nancy asked Carrie to call her, saying she wanted to hear her voice, but Carrie declined. It was a few days after that when another post appeared on Carrie's Facebook feed. A photo of a hand wearing an engagement ring. The caption? Dave and I got engaged. Nancy stared at the picture, and she knew one thing for certain. That squat hand with short fingers did not belong to her daughter. The holidays passed without incident, and on January eighth, 2013, Dave Krupa was driving through the parking lot of his apartment complex. That's when he saw a familiar vehicle, a Ford Explorer sitting beneath a mound of snow. He slowed his car to get a better look. It was Carrie's car. Had she rented a unit in his complex? He phoned the police, and they sent a tow truck and an evidence technician to examine the vehicle. Once again, police wanted to talk to Dave and Liz about the missing woman both of them pulled out their phones to show hundreds of harassing texts and emails that were allegedly from Carrie Farver. And listeners, one of the interesting things about this case is that it took place in both Nebraska, where Dave lived, and Iowa, where Carrie lived. Iowa law enforcement was concerned about a missing woman who'd left her teenage son behind. Nebraska law enforcement was pursuing a vicious stalker who harassed people by text, email, and phone. Once technicians went over Carrie's car, which was completely empty, they found only one piece of evidence, a single fingerprint. The car was released to Carrie's mom, Nancy, who wanted to give the car to Carrie's now 16-year-old son, Max. When Nancy looked at the car, she was surprised at how clean it was, and she wrote off the very tidy appearance to the work of evidence technicians. You see, while Carrie kept a clean house, her car tended to be a bit messy. But the explorer was spotless when returned to Carrie's family. On January 28th, another lengthy text from Carrie arrived on Dave's phone. You tell Liz to stay away from you or I will come after her again. I don't want to find out you two had sex. If I find out anyone else is around, I will go after them also. I'm mainly after Liz. She ruined everything. It was in April when Carrie had been missing about five months that her mother, Nancy, got the call she'd been waiting for. A man phoned, identifying himself as Dave Krupa. He said that Carrie was at a homeless shelter in Omaha, Nebraska. Nancy's heart soared. She didn't trust herself to make the long drive into the city, so she phoned her brother and the police. They arrived at the shelter and met the detectives out front. The detectives said they would go in first, and they wanted Nancy to wait outside. The detectives, armed with photos of Carrie, went in, while Nancy paced on the sidewalk. They emerged a few minutes later without Carrie Farver. There was no one at the shelter that matched her description, and there hadn't been anyone staying there previously who matched her description. The call from Dave Krupa was a dead end. Police approached Dave about the phone call. He reacted with surprise. He hadn't called Nancy and didn't know anything about Carrie's location. Later that day, Nancy logged into Facebook and found a message from her daughter's account. Mom, come get me at Sienna House in Omaha. I asked Dave to call you, but I'm not sure he will. Mom, I need you. It was all an elaborate ruse, and a cruel one at that. Nancy and her grandson were both missing Carrie fiercely, and they didn't understand what was going on or why. And listeners, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Dave Krupa's home and workplace were often the site of vandalism. One morning, he arrived at work to find that someone used neon-orange spray paint to write Dave Beats Women on the front of the building. Thankfully, the paint was still damp, and he and some co-workers were able to scrub it away or the incident could have cost him his job. Despite all of the harassment and nonsense from Carrie, there were still dozens of texts and emails each day. Ugly fat, fat whore. whore. Dave was still dating. He was still seeing Liz and still looking for women on Plenty of Fish. In May, he met a new woman, Jessica. After a few dates, they became Facebook friends. On May 10th, Jessica received a message on Facebook from Carrie Farver. So, you must be Dave's new whore. He has herpes. Watch Watch out for for him. him. Jessica immediately asked Dave about Carrie and about the herpes. Dave told her the truth about Carrie and that he didn't have herpes. Jessica was reassured, but the nasty messages kept coming. I will kill you and your fucking kids. I will cut your throat while you sleep. The next morning came another message. I know where you live, and I will come for you and your son. Jessica reported the harassment to police, which led to another message. You dumb, stupid whore. I I can find find whoever whoever I want. If you You don't don't stop stop talking to Dave, I will kill you. Stay away from Dave's stupid whore. The next day, there was another message. No profanity this time, just Jessica's home address and apartment number. Not surprisingly, Jessica was done. She texted Dave that he was a nice guy, but she didn't need this in her life. Dave, who had purchased a handgun for his own protection, understood where she was coming from. Jessica wasn't the only one being harassed by Carrie. On May 11th, a memorial for Liz Goliar showed up on Remembered.com. A link was texted to Dave Krupa. The obit read, I didn't know her well. She was a whore and a man-stealer. Thank God she is gone. Good riddance to you. During the summer of 2013, Dave cooled things off with Liz. Yeah, they still hooked up once in a while, but not as often as before but the threatening emails and text messages from Carrie continued for both of them. In August of 2013, someone set fire to Liz Goliar's home. She and her two children had been spending the night with a male friend of hers when the fire, which was clearly an arson job, started in her rented home. Her pets, including two dogs, perished in the blaze. Both Dave and Liz received emails from Carrie about the fire. I am not lying. I set that nasty whore's house on fire. I hope the whore and her kids die in it. Both Liz and Dave went to police about the harassment again. And once again, Dave and Liz are united in their fear of Carrie Farver. But who is Liz Golyar? Shanna K. Golyar was born in Michigan in the 1970s. Her mother, Dee, died when she was just three years old. Her father had never really been in the picture, so Shanna and her little brother George went to foster care. They would be adopted and raised by a nice family in Battle Creek, Michigan. When Shanna was 20, she married Arthur Droon, but the marriage didn't last. When she was back on the market, she started dating Raymond Strahan. Ray's mother and stepmother warned him about Shanna. They didn't like her, but he was smitten with the petite, dark-haired girl. Shanna, for her part, was very jealous, and she didn't like when Ray talked to his female co-workers. Before long, Shanna became pregnant with his child. Knowing his mother and stepmother did not approve, he said, Shanna, please wait, let's let's wait to tell my family about the pregnancy. But Shanna told his mother the first chance she got. Needless to say, Ray's family was not pleased. Ray got a home for them and wanted to be ready for the arrival of their baby, but Shanna had other plans. When she was eight months pregnant, she moved into the home of a guy named Neil Munson. Ray was upset, but Shanna blew him off, saying that she and Neil were just friends. It was a roommate situation. Cody Nathaniel Goliar was born August twenty-fifth, 1998. Ray was instantly taken with his son, but also heartbroken because Shanna had lied. Neil wasn't her roommate. He was her boyfriend. Neil also had a baby at home, a son a few months older than Cody. And Neil came from a large family. He liked kids. His mother, like Ray's mother and stepmother, didn't like Shanna. And she was very vocal about her displeasure with Neil's situation. Cody was a colicky baby. He cried often and was hard to calm and soothe. One day in January of 1999, Cody became very calm and quiet. Neil's mother, Gloria, had come by the house and noticed that Cody wasn't fussing like usual. Cody's mother, Shanna, was at work and Neil was home with the baby. When Gloria checked on Cody late that afternoon, she realized that he wasn't breathing. They called 911 and did everything they could to save the infant. Neil was crushed by what happened. He was sure he hadn't done anything unusual with the baby. He'd fed him and played with him? The baby had just been quiet all day. Neil told his mother that Shanna had called him at work the night before, saying, I dropped the baby, you need to come home. Neil came home as she requested, but Cody seemed okay, just quiet. Since Neil had been alone with Cody all day, police took him into custody, and Neil admitted that he'd bounced the baby on his knee and held him up in the air to play with him. These actions were deemed close enough to the shaken baby diagnosis handed down by the coroner. Someone had harmed Cody Goliar, and Neal admitted that, yeah, it could have been him, so Neal was charged in Cody's death. The day after the death of baby Cody, a friend of Shanna's ran into her at Walmart, and Shanna was all smiles. Apparently, a couple was treating her to a new wardrobe. At Cody's funeral, Shanna showed off pictures of Neil's infant son while her own child lay nearby in a casket. After the funeral, she briefly reunited with Ray, resuming their physical relationship, but it didn't last. While Neil would go to prison for Cody's death, Ray always suspected that Shanna was responsible for what became of their small son. Neil would spend eight and a half years in prison for the death of Cody Golyar. Meanwhile, Shanna Liz Goliar was never even a suspect in the death of her child. As events unfold in Iowa and Nebraska, it's fair to say that Neal's conviction deserves a second look. In the February of 2015, Dave Krupa moved out of his apartment, and he moved into a new place in Omaha. This put him much closer to Amy and his children. It was also in the spring of 2015 that law enforcement really looked at Carrie's disappearance. This time, two detectives tackled the case. One detective investigated the case from the position of Carrie is alive and she's harassing people. The other detective looked at the case as though Carrie, who hadn't been seen in two years, was deceased. The two detectives kept coming up against the same name, Shanna Liz Goliar. In fact, the first time Shanna, a.k.a. Liz, came up was the day that Carrie went missing. Carrie sent a text message to her work. I'm taking a job in Kansas. I'm sending someone out to you to fill my position. Her name is Shanna Goliar. Listeners, the idea that Carrie would recommend Liz, who worked as a housekeeper, for the programming job that Carrie held was ridiculous. Liz even showed up at Carrie's workplace expecting to be hired for the job, but she was not offered a position. One piece of evidence that police had was downloads of Liz and Dave's phones. This download is where police put the phones in airplane mode. They connect it to software, and they download everything on the phone so it can be forensically examined. Not surprisingly, Liz's phone was a treasure trove of information. She'd called Carrie Farver's home after Carrie went missing. She'd taken pictures of Carrie's car after Carrie and her car went missing. Knowing that Carrie's car was recovered and thoroughly examined, detectives asked that the evidence be looked at once again. The fingerprint, the one lonely print they found in Carrie's very clean car, it belonged to Liz Goliar. While that one fingerprint was not enough for an arrest in the case, it certainly piqued the interest of investigators. In November of 2015, Dave and Liz had plans to spend Thanksgiving together but the Omaha area was struck by a blizzard which made travel treacherous. Before Dave could meet up with Liz, he received a call from his former partner, Amy. Amy was now the mother of a toddler in addition to their two kids, and like any good dad, Dave wanted his kids to have a good relationship with their younger sibling. Amy called him that Thanksgiving day, and she was upset. Her toddler was sick, very sick. But with the terrible weather, she was afraid to drive him to the hospital. Could Dave help? Of course, Dave did not hesitate to step up and do the right thing by Amy and the baby. The toddler had a respiratory infection and a fever of 103. It looked pretty serious. Dave messaged Liz with his regrets and hurried over to Amy's place. Liz was furious with him for canceling, and Dave was angry with Liz for not understanding the importance of helping out when needed. Dave again tried to end things with Liz. He'd met someone else. He was ready for a new type of relationship, a relationship that didn't include Liz Goliar. Two days later, Dave woke to a flurry of angry texts, not from Liz, but from every other female in his phone. As he scrolled through his messages, he realized that these women were angry about texts he had sent to them. But Dave hadn't sent any texts. He'd put the phone on the charger near his bed and went to sleep. The outgoing messages from his phone called the women whores and fat asses. Had someone crept into his room and used his phone while he slept? On November 29th, Dave checked his bedroom closet looking for his handgun. That's when he discovered it was gone. On December 4th, Liz Goliar went to the police to report a series of harassing messages she'd received from Amy Flora. Remember, Amy is Dave Krupa's former partner and the mother of his two children. While filing the report, she brought up that Dave's handgun was missing, and she thought Amy could be responsible for the theft. Detective Ryan Avis, who was already suspicious of Liz Goliar because he'd searched her phone and found her fingerprint in Carrie's Ford Explorer, the detective decided to personally investigate Liz's complaint. He drove to the home Liz shared with a man we'll call Garrett. Garrett and Liz had been romantically involved at one point, but eventually she moved herself and her two children into his home and basically terminated the intimate part of their relationship. Their relationship is really well outlined in the Leslie Rulebook, A Tangled Web. So Liz is living in his home, basically as a housemate, but not paying rent and not helping with anything. And Garrett no longer has feelings for her, but he was reluctant to force her out when she and her kids, who he actually liked, had nowhere to go. Whenever he would ask Liz for help with rent or utilities, she would claim that she was broke. During the detective's visit with Liz, he asked if he could download her phone and analyze the contents as part of the investigation. Liz agreed. He asked her about Dave's missing gun and her demeanor changed. She became evasive. Detective Avis took notes during their conversation and felt that the case against Liz Goliar for the disappearance of Carrie Farver was coming together. On December 5th, everything changed. Amy, Dave's former partner, was at home with her toddler son, who was taking a nice nap. Liz Goliar was about to leave the house she shared with Garrett. In fact, she made a point of telling him that she was going to Walmart. Garrett was surprised she usually avoided him. He responded okay to her announcement, and she departed. At 6.41 p.m., a 911 call came in. It was a woman. She cried out that she'd been shot in the leg. She was at Big Lake Park when a strange woman approached and shot at her. When officers arrived, they found Liz Goliar on the ground, bleeding from a gunshot wound. A helicopter swept across the night sky, a spotlight scanning for someone fleeing the area. Police wanted to catch her attacker. Liz told the officers that she knew who it was that attacked and shot her. It was Amy. Amy Flora shot her after saying, So, you like fucking Dave? Liz was transported by ambulance to the hospital as officers were dispatched to the home of Amy Flora. While Liz Golyar was bleeding from a leg wound at the park, Amy was dressed in warm, comfy clothing playing games on her iPad. She didn't think much of the knock on her door, but when she opened it, Amy found herself face-to-face with police officers who had their guns drawn. They told her that Shanna Goliar had been shot and claimed Amy was the one who did it. Amy gaped at them. She'd been home with her son all afternoon. She didn't like guns, and it took her a moment to figure out who Shanna Goliar was. Then she realized this was the woman she knew as Liz. Officers asked if they could come in and search the home. Amy agreed, but they found nothing of interest. Amy Flora hadn't shot at anyone. An officer checked her car, which was parked out front. The hood was cold. She hadn't driven anywhere recently. As Liz lay in a hospital bed, the wound to her thigh was a through-and-through, thankfully missing both bone and serious arteries. She was interviewed by Council Bluffs' detective, Coleman. He told her that Amy had been rolled out as the shooter, and Liz responded, Are you sure? It sounded like her. Once the questioning was over, Liz placed a call to Garrett. She'd been shot. He needed to come to the hospital. Shot? he asked. How did she get shot at Walmart? Liz was annoyed, and she explained that she'd been at the park when Amy attacked her. He needed to come up and see her right away. Garrett didn't want to leave Liz's kids unattended, so he found someone to watch them and went to the hospital. When he arrived at her room, he asked if this had something to do with the Dave and Carrie thing and Liz started to cry. He asked her why she was at the park, alone, at night, and she said the pain medicine was making her groggy. She needed him to get her some things from the house. When Garrett searched her room for the items she had requested, he found a laptop under her bed. The same laptop he'd lost in a burglary two years earlier. When he confronted her about it, she said she'd bought the laptop at a pawn shop. Crazy coincidence that it was his laptop, right? While Liz was recovering from her gunshot wound, investigator Anthony Cava was going through the download of Liz's phone, and what he found stopped him cold. He noted that Liz had registered a large number of email accounts, including 31 from Google, 9 from Yahoo, and 5 from Microsoft, all of which had a variation of Carrie Farver's name. It was found that all messages sent by Carrie after her disappearance As well as all messages sent by Amy were linked to Liz through IP addresses and device usage. Every single email sent by Carrie Farver over the last few years originated on accounts held by Liz Goliar. Kava found other interesting things in her phone, including an app that allowed her to schedule texts to arrive later. So Liz could be sitting next to Dave Krupa and suddenly each of them would get a text supposedly from Carrie Farver. By Cava's calculations, Liz spent 40 to 50 hours a week sending or scheduling texts and emails through her various devices, apps, and accounts. On December 18th, they brought Liz into the station and confided in her that they believe Amy was responsible for the shooting. They just needed more evidence to prove it. Within days, Liz was forwarding them emails from Amy where Amy confessed to shooting Liz. Amy also confessed to setting fire to Liz's home and to the murder of Carrie Farver. These emails that were allegedly written by Amy Flora were filled with spelling and grammatical errors. One email read quote, I attacked her with a knife. I stabbed her three to four times in chest and stomach area. I 10 took her out and burned her. This stabbing supposedly happened in Carrie's car the Ford Explorer, that had been searched previously. So police went back to Carrie's family and requested access to the car. Remember, Carrie's son, Max, has been driving this car for the last year. This time, investigators dismantled the car. They stripped the seats down and found that the passenger seat was covered with a dark red substance that testing revealed to be blood. One of the emails allegedly sent by Amy described a distinctive tattoo on Carrie's thigh. Information about the tattoo was never made public. Another email talked about wrapping Carrie's body in a tarp. Police asked Carrie's family for access to the storage unit where they'd moved her belongings. Meanwhile, they pulled a search warrant for Liz's home. In Liz's possession, they found a video camera that matched the camera Carrie owned. Also among Liz's belongings were items bought with Carrie's stolen debit and credit cards. It would take months to painstakingly build a case around Shanna Liz Goliar. She was arrested in December of 2016, more than four years after Carrie Farver vanished. Liz was charged with first-degree murder and second-degree arson. Liz would not be charged for the shooting incident or for filing a false police report. Her accusations against Amy Flora went unpunished. She opted for a bench trial, and, according to ABC News, her attorney wanted to rush to trial, hoping to try Liz before Carrie's body was recovered. In February of 2017, Dave Krupa, who moved back in with Amy Flora and their children while this madness continued to unfold, he found a tablet that Liz once had access to. He turned the tablet over to Anthony Kava. Kava was the tech investigator who discovered all the accounts and apps on Liz's phone that she'd used to terrorize herself and Dave Krupa for years. When Kava looked at the tablet, he didn't find anything interesting. But on its SD card, he found thousands of images, including photos of what appeared to be Carrie Farver's body, particularly close up shots of her tattoos. In May of 2017, Liz Goliar went on trial. The prosecutor knew she had an uphill battle because the case was so layered, so bizarre and unsettling. Plus, they didn't have the body of Carrie Farver, but they wanted Liz Goliard convicted of her murder. The defense correctly pointed out that the case was circumstantial. There was no body, no murder weapon, nothing connecting Liz Goliard to Carrie's murder. However, the defense did not present any evidence, and Liz did not take the stand in her defense. On May 24th, Shanna Liz Golyar was found guilty of both charges, and in August, she was sentenced to life for first-degree murder and 18 to 20 years for arson to be served concurrently. Liz appealed the sentence, and in 2018, the Nebraska Supreme Court upheld her conviction. Liz is currently imprisoned in the Nebraska Correctional Center for Women in York, Nebraska. Her next parole hearing is November 2027. As of this writing, the body of Carrie Farver has yet to be recovered. If you're interested in learning more about this case, I highly recommend you read Leslie Rule's book, A Tangled Web. There is so much information packed in there, and it was a great read. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.